If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7, we're going to be looking at John chapter 7, 25 through 52, so right where we left off at 25 through the end of the chapter, it's on page 893 of the ESBP Bible. It's part of our series through John, just that simple as we make our way verse by verse through this this book. We're not even halfway yet. And let's go to the Lord in prayer before we open up the word. Heavenly Father, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit as we open up your word this morning. We ask that you would show us what these words mean. Show us how to apply them. Show us how to walk more faithfully. So Father, we're dependent upon you, and we trust that you will answer this prayer and make your word clear to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tina would sometimes stop by the art department at the local college that was in the same town that she lived in. If she had a particularly stressful week or a bad day, she would stop by there and walk through the gallery just to kind of decompress before going home. And this particular day, it was the senior's final exhibit. And so in, in the past, sometimes there would be a bunch of sculptures or there would be a bunch of glasswork or a bunch of paintings. And th- this time it was the senior's best work. This was to be their capstone piece. And they were competing for top artists of their graduating class. And so it was a a mixture of, of all kinds of different pieces of art with all kinds of different mediums. And so she entered the gallery and she started walking the perimeter and she saw all kinds of different art. She saw a, a small intricate wooden box with a bunch of moving pieces that looked kind of like a puzzle. She saw a, a beautiful looking clay vessel that was shaped and, and had smooth lines and was painted. She saw some abstract art. She saw one that looked like someone had just taken their brush and flicked it at different angles at the, at the canvas. And after she had made her way all the way around the perimeter of the gallery, she then turned to the center. And and right in the middle of the gallery, on a wall all by itself, was a painting, oil on canvas. And it was was given this position with nothing else. It it was featured right in the center of the wall. There there were lights from the the ceiling that were were accenting and training their, their beams right on this picture. And below, it said, Top Artist. And immediately, Tina was drawn to this picture. She, she began studying it, and she was impressed. The detail, the colors, the shading, the shadows, the field of, of depth, the, the expressions on people's faces, it just captured her attention. It was exceptionally well done. And so she stood there for about 20 minutes, and she allowed the painting to recall memories that had been 
hidden in the back of her mind. She allowed the painting to evoke an emotional response out of her for about 20 minutes. And finally, she looked at her watch and knew she had to get going. And as she turned to leave, under her breath, she muttered, yes, now that is art. That deserved to win. That deserved the prominent position in the middle of the gallery. In John chapter 7, there is a crowd in Jerusalem, and the crowd is speaking. The Jewish leaders are speaking. The Pharisees are speaking. The temple guard is speaking. Nicodemus is speaking. And of course, Jesus is speaking. But of all the words that are spoken in this passage, even among the words of Jesus, only some are chosen for a prominent position. When Jesus speaks these words, it's like they are on a wall all by themselves. It's like all the lights are trained and focused on these words. They're showcased for us. So this morning, as we look at John chapter 7, I want us to answer three questions. Number one, what are those words? And what do they mean? Number two, why are they given a prominent position by Jesus? And number three, what does this teach the church? And that includes you and me, as we seek to be faithful and obedient. So here's John 7, 25 through 52. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? 
The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So we join Jesus at verse 25, speaking to the Jerusalem crowd. And the people were aware that the leadership had a capture and kill order out on Jesus. They knew that. They knew they were seeking him. And that prompted some in the crowd to wonder what was going on. Because here Jesus was teaching openly and nothing was happening. They weren't making a move against Jesus. They were confused. Isn't this the guy they're trying to kill? Well, here he is. And the crowd could think of one possible explanation, and that was that maybe they had changed their mind. It says, can it be that the authorities really know he is the Christ? Maybe, Maybe they called it off. Maybe this is the guy. And then they say, but we know where this man comes from. No, they didn't. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Not true. When they stated they, didn't, they knew where Jesus came from, they thought they knew. They thought he came from Nazareth because that's where he spent most of his childhood. They all thought that. Uh, in the first century, the most common means of identi- identifying someone with any sort of specificity was to name their father and was to name where they were born. So you see, sometimes you see them doubling up, saying, Jesus, uh, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. But other times you'll just see one or the other. For example, John 6, 42 says, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Uh, Later in Matthew 21, and, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And then finally, John 19 This is at the cross now. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So they all thought he was from Nazareth. And they thought that all the way to the end, even to the cross. But he was born in Bethlehem. So they didn't really know where he was from. And then the statement about when the Christ comes, no one will know where he comes from. That's not true either. In fact, just a few verses from now in verse 42 We're going to see some of the other people in the crowd commenting about, wait a minute, isn't he supposed to come from Bethlehem? So they knew. And certainly the leadership knew. That's what verse 52 reveals to us. That was common knowledge. Among those who were actively looking for and expecting and awaiting the Messiah knew anything in detail about the scriptures. They knew that he was supposed to come from Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. They had that. They had access to those scriptures, so they knew. So one of the things we need to see as we work our way through this passage is that the crowd really doesn't know what's going on. The crowd is confused. The crowd is confused about Jesus. Here's some more confusion. 
Jesus proclaimed, you know me and you know where I come from. And most take that to mean Jesus is saying, yeah, you kind of know where I'm from. You, you mentioned Nazareth. Yes, that's true. I, do, I have lived in Nazareth, but you really don't know who I am or where I came from. You really don't know that I'm the son of God, the only sent one from God, and you don't know God. You claim to know. You profess to know, but you really don't know him. He says, him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him. This would have made them angry. These were Jewish people standing in Jerusalem near the temple for a Jewish celebration. Their identity was wrapped up in being the people of God. And here's a man confronting them saying, you don't know God. You call yourself the people of God, you don't know him. I know him, but you don't. So they wanted to arrest him. But Jesus' hour had not yet come, so no one laid a hand on him. This is divine intervention. This is divine restraint. Nothing happened to Jesus that was not decreed or purposed by the Father, which we also need to understand as followers of Jesus, this, this also applies to us. Nothing happens to any of us that is not decreed and purposed by the Father. And knowing this truth is one of the greatest antidotes against worry and anxiety and stress. Knowing that nothing happens to us apart from the will of God the Father. As one biblical scholar put it, we are all immortal until our work is done. That's comforting. And assuring. If you're a follower of Christ, know this. God will not let you die until your work is done for him. Nothing can touch you. Nothing and no one can touch you. You have the protection of God Almighty surrounding you at all times. So we are to live and walk in confidence and in peace and in contentment. Because we know that we belong to God. We are to live for Christ while it is day. Night is coming for all of us. Okay, but it's not night right now, it's daytime. So let's live for him and let's give him our best. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. And before we get too excited, we need to, we need to kind of qualify this belief. They believed in him, meaning they believed in what they thought the Messiah and the Christ should be. So remember, they had a very political, uh, militaristic, nationalistic idea of the Messiah so they believed in that kind of a Messiah. They didn't understand full Christology or anything that was going on or the nature of his coming, anything like that. So they, kind of, they believed in the Messiah. But even, even look at this. Look at the, what the belief is, is based on. Here's their reasoning. When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Does that sound like saving faith to you? Does that sound like true belief? Well, uh, he's done a lot of healings. I, I guess he's the Christ. Okay, yeah, he's the Christ. Unless somebody else comes along that does even more. But yeah, for now, I, I'll believe he's the Christ. That's kind of what they seem to be saying here. Verse 32, more confusion. The Pharisees, who were the Jewish leaders, heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest them. So they're fed up. I mean, Jewish feast days or not, we've had it. Go, just go get this guy. 
they were probably waiting for a more opportune time rather than in the middle of a feast. But they've had enough. Uh, the officers here in verse 32 and also in verses 45 and 46, these were temple guard. They were traditionally drawn from the tribe of, of Levi. Uh, they were assigned with maintaining order in the temple and the temple area, but they could occasionally receive extra assignments as needed. And this was one of those extra assignments. They were told to go arrest Jesus. And it seems like they arrived on site, but listened to Jesus without arresting him. And this is another example of divine restraint. I mean, if we, if we put the timeline together, it, it looks like they were there for a couple of days listening to Jesus teach, but they did not make a move on him. Verses 33 and 34, uh, this teaching about uh, a little, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. He's talking about his incarnational ministry. Uh, Jesus walked the earth for a finite amount of time, uh, he's not currently physically walking the earth, uh, but he was on the earth for a finite amount of time, and then he returned to heaven. And he's telling all who are listening, <clears throat> there's a time coming when you're going to realize who I am, but it will be too late. Because you will not be able to go where I am. Uh, the window of opportunity will be shut. If you want to experience the grace and forgiveness of God, then you need to act now. You need to repent now while there's, while there's time. You, you can't wait until it's too late. Verses 35 and 36 describes the confusion among Jesus' listeners. They thought that he might be leaving Jerusalem, uh, leaving Judea to go teach the dispersion. Dispersion is a name for the, the Jewish people that were uh, dispersed among the Gentile nations outside of Jerusalem and Judea. So they were wondering, well, what does this mean? Is he going to the dispersion? Is he going to teach them? Um, is he going to teach actually the Gentiles? Uh, what is he talking about here? What does he mean? Again, the crowd is confused. They really don't know anything about who he is, why he's here. They're confused. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. And we need to unpack that verse <clears throat> into three different sections. Uh, let's take the first part. On the last day of the feast, the great day. So this was a week-long celebration. It was called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Ingathering. It went by all three of those names. It was a seven-day feast. There was lots of singing and praising to God. They would sing psalms. And part of this celebration was a ceremony where they would take this golden pitcher and they would fill it with water outside the wall. And then there would be this processional led by the high priest into the temple and they would pour the water out as an offering to God. So they did that every day. This is the last day. So this is the high point. This is where they're at their peak of, of worshiping and thanking God. And that water being poured out was symbolic of a couple of things. It was, it was symbolic of God's provision. Uh, if you remember back in uh, Exodus 17 and Numbers 20, uh, Moses struck the rock and God caused water to come out of the rock. And also of his, uh, the, the foreshadowing of cleansing sin and the outpouring of the Spirit in the last days. 
So this is the final day of the feast. This is the climax of the celebration. And it, it seems to be after that last water pouring part of the celebration, that's when Jesus spoke. That's what it means, the last day of the great day. Stood up. I, I think it's very, very unlikely that Jesus was sitting on the ground at the moment when they're talking about it. The idea here is that he stood up where people could see him. He took some elevated position. He, he rose above everyone else. He stood above the crowd where he could be seen and heard, someplace where he would not be missed. And then finally, he cried out. That means lifted up his voice or shouted. So Jesus was standing in some place high and like a town crier making a, a public announcement at maximum volume, Jesus shouts, and, and, and speaks out as loud as he can across the crowd. And he said this. Well, for, first of all, let's answer our question. We said there were three questions. One of them is, what are the words that are in the prominent position? These. These are the words. This is like the, the painting with the lights on it in the middle of the room. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, Jesus did not stand up and shout everything. He could have. Jesus did not walk around shouting all the time. I mean, when we see, when we read through the Gospels, we see things, uh, editorial comments, or, or the writer saying things like, he answered, or he said, or he spoke to them and said, very rarely do we see Jesus shouting as loudly as he could. So when he does that, we need to pay attention. These are the words. Now, what do they mean? If anyone thirsts, now we've been with with John for a few chapters now, and I think we all understand there's a decision here that we have to make. There's a fork in the road, and then we can only take one path. Is he speaking literally? Are people literally thirsty? Or is he speaking spiritually? Yeah, spiritually. So we have to ask the question, what does it mean to spiritually thirst? To be thirsty is to have an awareness of our spiritual need. To be thirsty is to have an awareness and a conviction of our sin. To be thirsty is to have our eyes opened. And we finally look back and review our life and we start shaking our head in, in guilt and in shame and we start to wonder, how could I have been so foolish to have ignored God for so long? What have I been doing? To be thirsty is to be broken over sin. To be thirsty is to be desperate for forgiveness. To be thirsty is to have an urgent sense of our need to be made right with God. To be thirsty is recognize the spiritual danger of remaining outside of Christ. It's facing the reality. I have sinned before a holy God, and if I don't do something, if I, if I remain in my sin... 
and I don't turn to Jesus Christ in faith, I am going to hell for an eternity. To be spiritually thirsty is all these things. Or to put it another way, to be spiritually thirsty is to thirst for salvation. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone is spiritually thirsty for salvation, they are come to Jesus to come to Jesus Christ and believe. Drink means believe. We are to come to Jesus and believe for salvation. Jesus is directing all who are spiritually thirsty to himself. He's saying, I am what you're looking for. I am the answer. I am the way that you are to be made right with God. I am the, the, the only way that you can be forgiven your sin. He's saying, I am salvation. Turn to me. And then the second part, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now sometimes when we see a quote, that's a, in quotation marks, he's quoting the Old Testament. Sometimes when we see an Old Testament quotation by either Jesus or the writers in the New Testament, there's a direct one-on-one reference. We can go back and we say, yep, here it is, and it matches up perfectly. Sometimes it's a quote from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and that reads a little differently. Sometimes they have, uh, or they take divine or apostolic privilege, and they they tweak it a little bit, and they change the, the verse just a little bit, so it's still recognizable, but they've made it their own to make it fit the inspired word of God the way they want it to and the way God wants it to. In this case, there is no one reference to what Jesus is referring to, but rather this is an amalgam of many different themes and verses that we find in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah 55.1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Isaiah called people to come to the waters. Jesus is calling people to come to himself. Zechariah 13.1, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Jesus is the water that cleanses people from sin and uncleanness. Jesus is salvation. Ezekiel 47.1-9 describes a, a life-giving river that flows out of the temple. Jesus is saying, I'm the life-giving water. And as he's saying that, he is literally standing in the temple complex. So these verses and, and probably some more serve as the background for, for, what's, for what Jesus is saying and teaching in that statement. So he's saying that whoever believes in him will be cleansed and washed at the spiritual heart level. Whoever has believed in Jesus will be forgiven their sin. Whoever believes in Jesus will receive salvation. Whoever believes in Jesus will receive spiritual life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it will be so abundant that it will overflow. It will be be evident that they are are in Christ and they're saved. They, They will have a passion and a desire for serving God and serving his church. So these are the words that Jesus placed in a prominent position. And that's what they mean. We've answered the first question. Verse 39 is an explanation by John that, that clarifies some teaching on the Holy Spirit. He's saying, yes, those who come to him receive the Holy Spirit. When someone is saved and drawn to Christ by the power of the Spirit, they receive the Holy Spirit. But John's saying, um, so you know, the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out yet. That's going to come later in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. 
Well, now we see some reactions to these words that Jesus placed in a prominent position. If we think about this entire passage as kind of like a big hill or a, or a mountain, everything before those words in 25 to 36 were kind of going uphill. And then we've got the, the apex, the peak, the mountaintop, those words that were, were having the light shine on them. And now everything now is kind of downhill. We're, we're now just getting the reactions from those prominent position words. We don't know what it looks like for Jesus to shout, but I'm sure he commanded attention. And whatever it looked like, it was immediately recognized by the people as set apart from everything else. They keyed in on that. Whatever that looked like, the sheer power, the spiritual authority by which the Lord Jesus Christ spoke, they recognized that and responded. Look at verse 40. When they heard these words... That's the prophet. That's, that's their immediate reaction after he proclaims this in, in a shouting voice. That's the prophet. And remember, they're referring to the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, the Lord will raise up a prophet like me from among you. Listen to him. Yes, Jesus is that prophet, but he's also more than a prophet. He's prophet, priest, and king. He is, he is Lord. He is God. But some jump to the prophet. Verses 41 and 42, others said, this is the Christ. This is him. That, that settles it. Whatever Jesus did as he shouted those words, that was enough. Everybody said, I'm in. And then they were quickly challenged by others who questioned where the Christ should come from. Is, he, is it Galilee? Shouldn't it be from Bethlehem? There's that verse. They knew. So they were divided. Some wanted to arrest him. And once again, no one laid a hand on him because it was not yet his time. Verse 45, the officers, meaning the temple police, then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they showed up empty-handed. Probably not a good idea. The, the Jewish leaders were, were the power brokers and they, they were over everything and these guys were, were simply the, the police force and they showed up without doing what they asked. And so the, the Pharisees are kind of like, well, where is he? You were supposed to come back with Jesus. Their answer is no one ever spoke like this man. So the temple police even got caught up in the spiritual blast that exploded when Jesus spoke. They were, they were knocked off balance by this pressure wave, this, this concussion wave that, that emanated from Jesus as he spoke these words. And even though they were under orders to get him, they didn't make a move against him. They, they, they couldn't act. They were, they were paralyzed. Well, the Pharisees respond with venom. Really? You too? You think, have we believed in him? Okay, we should know, right? We're, we're the ones that know everything about the Bible. This crowd that doesn't know anything, who cares if they believe in Jesus? Don't get fooled. It infuriated the Pharisees that anyone would believe in Jesus. But not all of them uh, refused to believe. Look, here comes Nicodemus in verse 50. We haven't seen him since chapter 3. This is the Pharisee that came to Jesus at night and they had that whole exchange about needing to be born again. So here he is again. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and was one of them, he was a Pharisee, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does. 
Well, even though we haven't seen Nicodemus since chapter 3, it still looks like he's headed in the right direction. This was a bold move. The, the Sanhedrin, again, it doesn't get any more powerful in Jerusalem. They were over everything. It's like the judicial branch and the legislative branch together with unlimited power. They, they could do whatever they wanted to. This was a dangerous situation to speak out against them, and yet he does. So this showed faith, this, this showed courage, and Nicodemus should be commended. But look how fast they turn on one of their own. If you don't think like us, if you don't believe like us, you're now the enemy. So they respond with a sarcastic remark. Are you from Galilee too? Which meant, oh, you're one of his followers now? Then they chastise him and say, why don't you go look it up again? No prophet comes from Galilee. Prominent position. Let's, this is a powerful passage. Let's summarize this briefly. Jesus addressed a confused crowd in Jerusalem and proclaimed that if anyone was spiritually thirsty, they must come to him and believe. Most of the Jewish leaders did not believe in Jesus and they didn't want anyone else to believe in him either. That's the summary. Now I said we wanted to answer three questions and we answered the first one already. What were the words and what did they mean? We looked at that. The words were, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And they meant, it means if anyone is thirsty for salvation, they need to believe in Jesus. Number two, why are they given a prominent position by Jesus? As I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus could have walked around and stood in an elevated position and shouted his entire ministry, but he didn't. It was very selective. These words were shouted from an elevated position. Why? And the answer is because this is the overarching message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is redemption through faith in Jesus Christ. God, in his grace, has sent his son to pay for Sin, so that all who believe in him will be saved. So God is glorifying himself by calling out a people for himself from fallen humanity. And God gets all the glory. God glorifies himself by accomplishing salvation by himself so that he's glorified. He, he gets all the credit. He's glorified by saving sinners who at their hearts are naturally rebellious against him. He is glorified by taking them, by transforming their hearts, by bringing them to new life and slowly conforming them to the image of his son until they are Christ-like image bearers who desire to worship him for eternity. That is how God is glorified. And that is the overarching theme of the Bible. These words of Jesus capture and summarize the overarching theme of the Bible. Salvation is through faith in Jesus. Now, all the words of the Bible are good. All the words of the Bible are inspired. All the words of the Bible are profitable for teaching and preachable. But Jesus doesn't stand up and shout about everything. He uses this opportunity. He chose these, he chose these words to be 
to receive a prominent position because these words point people to himself. They take sinners and point to the Savior. They connect. And this is the, 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 the most boiled down, the most condensed, the most concise summary that you could have of the entire theme of the Bible. And this is why the church has loved uh, John 3.16 for so much. That's another s- short, single verse that summarizes the message of the Bible and connects sinners to the Savior. And that's why Jesus gave these words a prominent position. The sinner must turn to Jesus in order to be saved. So that's number two. Why are they given a prominent position? And question number three, what does this teach the church, including us, as we seek to be faithful? Well, it should be pretty obvious. If Jesus gave these words and this message a prominent place, then so should we. If Jesus gave these words and this message, this, this summary statement of the theme of, of the Bible, a prominent place, then the church should also put these words and this message as the central focal point and the prominent place of its message. And praise God, the faithful church has been doing this. It's been doing this since the time of Christ all the way till June 11, 2023. Now, I'm, I'm just going to, like a, like a rock rock skipping over the water. I just want to hit a couple of references. And what I want us to pay particular attention to is not only is this message being proclaimed by the church faithfully, but she is doing it in the same manner as her Lord. Look at the first example, Acts 2, 14 and 38. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And of course, this is his Pentecostal sermon. It's been called one of the greatest sermons ever delivered by the church. And he ends with, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That sounds awfully familiar. He stood up, he lifted his voice, and he delivered the same message. John Calvin, this is the great Swiss reformer in his church in Geneva in Switzerland. He actually had to ascend to the pulpit. If you go back and look at pictures of his pulpit, there's a short flight of stairs that he has to walk up to get to an elevated position. And then he raised his voice. And in those days, the pulpits were even built to reflect the sound waves and to as much as possible acoustically amplify the speaker's voice out over the people. And of course, Calvin proclaimed the good news of salvation through faith in Christ for many years. George Whitfield, if you remember your church history, he is probably the most prominent figure of the first great awakening in the 1730s and 1740s that took place in the American colonies and also over in England. He preached 18,000 times. At one point, he was preaching every day for months at a time. And he was known for his booming voice. This was before electricity amplification. And what he would do is he would would go on an itinerant preaching schedule. He would travel throughout the, the eastern seaboard in the American colonies. And he would stand up on a big rock. Or he would stand in the back of a horse drawn wagon. And he would boom out this incredible voice for hours at a time, proclaiming the message of salvation. 
and historians have noted that he often ended his messages with these words, quote, Come, poor, lost, undone sinner, come just as you are to Christ, end quote. And those are just a few. Still today, the church gathers on the Lord's Day, and the pastor or the preacher, whoever it is, is usually in an elevated position. And because we have modern technology, we don't have to shout it out, but it is amplified through electronic means, and the faithful church proclaims the gospel message. Not only is the church keeping this central prominent position for the gospel, but she's also doing it in the same way that our Lord has modeled. Because this message isn't heard anywhere else. Remember at the beginning I said, one of the things John's teaching us in this passage is that the crowd is confused. The the, the crowd, and and still today, the, the world is devoid of anything that comes even close to pointing people to Jesus Christ for salvation. The church is where you're going to hear this message. And I think that's what John is showing us. Uh, not only is Jesus proclaiming these, these summary words in a prominent position, but he's showing us how confused the crowd is from beginning to end. The crowd doesn't know where Jesus comes from. The crowd doesn't know who he is. The crowd declares him to be something he's not. The crowd wants him arrested. The crowd professes false belief in him. The crowd can't make up their mind over Jesus. The crowd didn't understand Jesus. Over and over, the, the crowd is just ping-ponging all over the place. They're confused. The church has been entrusted with proclaiming the gospel. The church has been entrusted with teaching and preaching and discipling and proclaiming. And the message of salvation should receive the most prominent position in her ministry. Words that connect sinner to Savior. That's what the church should place on the wall all by itself. If anyone is spiritually thirsty, let him come to Jesus and believe. So one of the questions that this text demands is, are you thirsty? Are you spiritually thirsty? Are you under conviction of your sin? Do you sense the need for the Savior? Are you feeling the weight of your sin before a holy God? I've pointed out several times, we've all broken all Ten Commandments. We we look to the law, and that's one of the purposes of the law, is to reveal our sin, to convict us, and to to draw us to Christ. When we look at those Ten Commandments, we all have to raise our hand and say, guilty. None of us have perfectly obeyed God. None of us have perfectly worshipped God. None of us have, have, have... failed or none of us have have kept God as the most important uh, person in our in our life above everything else none of us have have completely honored our father and mother perfectly our entire life all of us have told a lie all of us have taken something that doesn't belong to us none of us have have had a, a life free from all impure thoughts none of us have have completely lived a life of contentment and worship where we don't desire things that don't belong to us or covet. We've all broken all Ten Commandments. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. And God sends sinners to hell. That is, one of the purposes of the law is to show us our need 
for a savior. And only one person has kept the law. Only one person has kept the Ten Commandments perfectly from beginning to to the end of his life. And that's Jesus Christ. Jesus did everything that we can't do. He perfectly kept the law. And one of the good, part of the good news of the gospel is that this same Jesus who kept the law perfectly is also the one who satisfied the wrath of God so that when we believe upon him, God accepts the blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf as payment for the sin we really have committed. Jesus is the only person who has gone to the cross and shed his blood to make atonement or covering for sin. So he's got it all. He's got the perfect righteousness that we need and and God demands, and he has the sacrificial atonement, the covering for our sin that we have committed. God promises to give the believer in Jesus both. Your sin is forgiven. I accept Christ's payment on your behalf and I will credit or reckon or impute the perfect righteousness of Christ to you, the believer, so that we can be declared righteous, so we can be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. This is a limited opportunity. Those who do not come and believe in Jesus now will not find him or be with him later. That's what Jesus meant when he says in this passage, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Jesus is teaching it's impossible for anyone to come to him and be with him once they've died. Once, once Christ returns or we die, whichever comes first. When this life is over, that's it. The, the finality of death cannot be uh, broken. It cannot be erased. There are no exceptions. Hell has been called truth too late. Luke 13 says, this is Jesus, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter it and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door. Jesus is saying, there, this is a limited time offer. And none of us should think, well, you know, let me think about it. I'll, I'll have time. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but we, there was a, a preacher, teacher in our denomination that was well-respected. I, I very much appreciated his ministry. His name was Harry Reader. And he was going about the business of, of living life and, and, and doing everything. Uh, just a few weeks ago, he died suddenly by hitting a dump truck. The truck was just stopped making a turn and, and he, and he for, I guess, a fleeting moment, looked somewhere else, or maybe glanced at his phone, I don't know. But it was over, like that. He wasn't sick, he wasn't planning on dying, he didn't see it coming. There could be a dump truck with our name on it tomorrow. We don't know when that window is going to be shut. The consistent teaching of the Bible is that God is gracious and patient, but that once someone dies or Christ returns, that window is permanently Shut. There are no second chances. There is no such thing as purgatory. To all who are spiritually thirsty, all who are under conviction of sin, all who recognize they need to make peace with God while there is still time, Christ says, repent, believe, come to me, and I will be your salvation. 
I will forgive your sin. The righteousness that I achieve will be credited to you, to your account before God. You will be saved. If Jesus gave these words and this message a prominent position, then so must the church. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have told us what we must do in order to be made right with you. You have not left us in the dark. You have given us ample witness. You have been clear. You've been specific. You've been repetitive. And for the last 2,000 years, the church has proclaimed faithfully the same prominent gospel message. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we want to, as believers, to cling to that message, to daily repent and believe, to never stop following you in faith. And Lord, if there's anyone here who is not in Christ, who's never made that commitment and believed upon Jesus Christ, I pray that they would feel the weight of their sin and not delay any longer. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.